Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. All right, the topics of this week, I think, that are important. Uh, We got the Fed decision here not to raise rates. We'll talk about that. We have uh, the data today on the jobs numbers. Very interesting, right? Which, of course, tie into the Fed's policy because the Fed, it says, long as the... uh, job market remains strong and of course uh, the news today uh, was surprisingly strong then it's not going to cut interest rates okay we'll talk about that link between the two the fed's decision on rates and uh, what's going on uh, in the job market but i also want to talk about the the frontline feature article today in the wall street journal talking about the commercial property sector losses, bruising banks around the globe. That's the title. You know, I've been saying for some time, watch out for the commercial property sector. You know, that's uh, offices, uh, malls, factories, uh, hotels, theme parks, things like that, right? That's the commercial property sector. It's been in a deep recession for some time now. Uh, You know, when you talk about construction and housing, you tend to talk about uh, uh, residential housing, apartments maybe, but uh, uh, as bad as that is, about a third off its its height and stuck, residential housing. in a recession, uh, the commercial <clears throat> real estate is in a deeper, deeper funk <clears throat> and r- at risk uh, for a financial instability event. And right? I've been saying for some time, watch out for the CRE, commercial real estate market here, uh, because there's a linkage between that and the regional banks that we know are already in trouble, right? <clears throat> at least a dozen of them are still in trouble in the U.S., the smaller regional banks. The Fed has been throwing hundreds of billions of dollars at it to keep their balance sheets from collapsing and uh, uh, therefore scaring off even more depositors, which would worsen their situation. Okay, Uh, that problem, that crisis is not over in the regional banks. And it's tied into the commercial real estate problem, right? Because the regional banks hold big portfolios of commercial real estate. So if commercial real estate starts deflating, well, then the balance sheets of the regional banks get even worse, and the Fed has to throw even more money at it. The Fed and the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is also responsible for smaller banks. Okay, so they're going to have to throw even more money at it, and they can't raise interest rates. Because the Fed can't, because that would just exacerbate the losses and the problems in the regional banks. So you see, there's this uh, sort of nexus between the regional banks and the commercial real estate and Fed interest rates. Yeah, there, there's a kind of a connection between all of those, and it's a very unstable situation. Anyway, we'll talk more about this uh, uh, main. Uh, Feature front page article, quote, in the Wall Street Journal, quote, commercial property losses bruise banks around the globe. So it's not just just the U.S. problem that I just described. 
this particular article says, oh, the same problem going on in, in Japan mm. and in Europe, Switzerland, Aus Austria. Mm, yeah. And, of course, the article does not mention the fact that Evergrande, the big commercial property uh, company, real estate company in China, <clears throat> was just told, um, you know, get rid of some of your assets. You're in big trouble. That Evergrande problem has not gone away in China. So this is a global thing going on. And if one of these regional country uh, banks, you know, tied into commercial real estate or the CRE market go belly up, it's going to propagate contagion real quick around the world. Okay, well, we'll come back to this article here in commercial real estate and the Fed's decision. Basically, well, let's talk about the Fed's decision before we get to the job numbers. And if we have time, I want to talk about Ukraine as well and the funding for Ukraine, what, where, where that stands. Okay, so job numbers. Job numbers. Remember, you know, most of my comments on these job numbers are pick your poison. <laughs> Meaning, uh, you know, government job statistics are kind of like the Bible. You can find whatever you want in them, whether you want to hype it and spin it or whether you want to say, well, it doesn't look so good, right? Just like the Bible. And, of course, the main street media cherry picks the very best statistic that it throws at you here to make it look like things are really going okay. Well, sometimes even... Even the best statistic, you know, you can't cover that up. <clears throat> and the statistics they throw at us tend to come, on jobs, tend to come from what's called the current establishment survey, which isn't quite a survey. It's kind of like a report. Uh, big companies, larger companies, uh, send <clears throat> information to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, every month, Labor Department saying how many employees they hired, how many they laid off, etc. <clears throat> right? That's the CE. Big companies, about 400,000 of them. Although, in recent years and months, the participation of these 400,000 plus has really dropped off. So now you're getting maybe 150,000 of these big companies reporting. Now, there's like 8, 9 million companies, businesses in this country. You know, so 150,000, not really a sample. It's really, you know, it's not set up as a sample survey. It's set up as kind of like a partial census. They just send in the data. I don't know how reliable 150,000, maybe even 200,000 is, <clears throat> especially since participation been been dropping off, uh, of, of an economy, you know, with 8, 9 million companies in it. You know, the vast majority of businesses uh, in this country are not corporations. They are proprietorships and partnerships. In other words, they're not incorporated. <clears throat> Maybe uh, 80%, rough figure, I don't know if that's exactly right, but 80% are unincorporated partnerships, proprietorships, we call them, and partnerships. <clears throat> and then you got some fuzzy uh, in-between uh, you know, LLCs and so forth. Uh, and then you have your regular corporations. Uh, those are, you know, all these reports that come in for the, to the Labor Department for this 
current establishment survey are corporations and, and medium and large size corporations, even though their participation is, is falling off. Well, that's the number that you get hyped in the media. You know, that's the number of, oh, we created so many jobs, right? That's represented in what's called the U-3 employment figure, data, whatever, U-3, which is only full-time workers, you see. U-3 is full-time workers. If you looked at those who were involuntary part-time workers, and if you looked at those who want a job hmm, and simply didn't look for one in the last four weeks, or those who want a job and haven't looked for one in the last 12 months because they're really discouraged, right, and they're sort of dropped out of the labor force, whatever, those people are unemployed, but you see, the U.S. doesn't count them as unemployed in calculating the unemployment rate. No. <clears throat> you are only considered unemployed if you're out of work and you looked actively for a job in the last four weeks. That's how you get the 353,000 jobs that were created last month. Ooh, 353,000. Way too much for the Fed to start cutting interest rates. Because the Fed says the job market is one of its indicators it looks at. And it looks at this, this headline number of how many jobs were created <clears throat> in the past month. But once again, it uses this particular partial survey, you know, from the current establishment survey. There's two surveys, quote surveys, <clears throat> that are used by the Labor Department. And so far I've been talking about the CES, current establishment survey. You know, that's the one where you get full-time job jobs, quote, created month to month, unadjusted and seasonally adjusted. There's two, two, two columns there, right? I like the unadjusted because that's the raw number, you see. Seasonally adjusted, you know, so seasonality adjustment uh, is is not always as accurate as I think it should be <clears throat> post-COVID. <clears throat> okay, so 353,000 jobs in January created over December. You know, about 125,000 new people entered the labor force every month. So you've got a couple hundred thousand, 225,000 on top of those who entered the labor force, and all of them got jobs last month in January. All of them, 353,000. Now you look at the composition of that, mostly all services, services jobs. Professional business, you know, I mean, managers and uh, engineers and those type, right? Up 74,000 in January. Healthcare, 70,000. Retail, 45,000. Right? Government, 36,000. The other industries, goods producing industries, are barely growing or flat or negative. 
barely growing flat or negative. All the big job gains are in services. Now, that leads us back to the Fed. Because for, what, 20 months now, since December 22, Fed Chairman Powell has said that we've got to see weaknesses in the job market in services. That's the key to bringing inflation down. Remember in previous shows I've been saying inflation in services, CPI is stuck in the 5 to 6% range. Goods prices have collapsed <clears throat> down to zero in many cases, right? So the Fed raised record rate of interest, interest rates at a record pace here recently, um, although it's had you know, held steady here for months now, but it rose at a record rate up to five and a half percent. That caused a collapse in prices in and goods, 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 not services. Five and a half percent interest rate can dampen the economy in the goods sector, but it can't dampen, hasn't dampened the service sector, which is the bigger, bigger sector of total GDP services. Yeah. So the Fed is stuck, right? If it wants to get services inflation down, it's got to, as Powell, Chair Powell has said in December 22, he says, oh, our target is services. We got to get more unemployment and services to bring wages down, to bring consumption down, to bring prices down. But it hasn't happened. Even only raised it to five and a half percent. So why isn't the Fed raising it more? Well, we'll get to that. Has something to do with the commercial real estate market, yeah, and the inflation rate, <clears throat> but we'll get to that. The point is, the last number to sum up, last month's number of jobs created was 353,000. And by the way, November and December jobs were <clears throat> revised upward as well. So the job market, in services, and most of the part-time jobs are in services and temp jobs, by the way, that is still too strong for the Fed to raise interest rates. According to this U-3 CES current establishment survey, I want to emphasize that. According to the CES survey, jobs 353,000, right? November and December raised, revised up, mostly in services, all of these, right? That's what's key to understand. Now, when we get to the unemployment rate, that was stuck. Well, how at 3.7% unemployment. And that's been stuck for three months now at 3.7%. How the hell do you get all these job increases for the last three months, especially January, and the unemployment rate doesn't move? How can you create over a half a million jobs? Actually, let's look at it. Three months now. In November, 182,000 jobs revised up, 333,000 in December, 353,000 in January. That's like uh, seven, uh, that's like 900,000 jobs. 900,000 jobs created, new jobs, net new jobs, in three months. 
How do you get 900,000 jobs and the unemployment rate doesn't move? Well, I'll tell you how. You get more people dropping out of the labor force. That's how. And and that's what we see. We'll we'll talk about this. Hold on. Hold on. Right? <clears throat> By the way, we see an increase also in uh, involuntary part-time jobs. Right? Uh, to the Labor Department, a job is a job, you know, when they're calculating the unemployment rate. It doesn't matter if it's part-time or full-time. Right? Okay. So, once again, the CES survey of large corporations, 353,000 jobs last month, 900,000 over the last three months. Hmm. Sounds like a strong labor market, right? And most of them in services. Well, that's just what Fed Chair Powell doesn't want to see. Because he said, you know, we're not going to cut rates until it's clear that uh, the economy really is uh, slowing down. <clears throat> and that's uh, what the Fed uh, recent uh, de decision in uh, Powell's uh, press conference said here uh, this week, right? Surprise them. Surprise Wall Street. You know, Wall Street really wants those rates to come down. Why? Why does Wall Street like those rates? And why, when the rates come down, uh, does Wall Street go up? Well, because if the rates come down, bankers and investors can borrow more cheaply from the Fed. They get more money. They can buy, you know, bonds cost less. Treasury bonds cost less. And they can then lend them out to speculators who invest in stock and bond markets. See, that's part of the problem we got in the 21st century capitalist economy with monetary policy. A lot of the money creation and liquidity, they call it, injected into the banks and the economy by the Federal Reserve, a lot of that gets siphoned off into financial markets. A good part of it gets siphoned off abroad by multinational corporations. They take that money and they invest abroad. Or they take that money and invest in financial markets abroad. You know, big corporations, multinationals, one-third of their profits are called portfolio profits. In other words, profits from financial speculation and investment, not by making things. So the problem with monetary policy, I believe, long-term, this has been brewing and, you know, maturing for decades, but now it's very clear, uh, get siphoned off into whenever the Fed tries to bail out the economy, gets siphoned off into financial asset markets, not into what we call the real economy. In other words, businesses that are expanding production of real things that hire real people and real suppliers and generate real income. You know, that's why, if I can digress, that's why in, in the, the 2023 GDP data that we just saw, GDP, gross domestic product, measure of the performance of the economy in terms of producing things, you know, financial assets are not part of GDP calculation. Uh, GDP showed a 2.5% growth last year. Well, if you look at the income generated by that growth, it rose only 1.5% last year. Why this big gap between 
the income that's supposed to be equal to to what's created in terms of goods and services, why is there that 1% gap? Hmm. Is it really 1.5% growth here? I mean, when you look at it in, in income terms, or is it 2.5%? Well, those are problems with GDP. We talked about that. <clears throat> uh, but anyway, uh, you know, when you've got 900,000 jobs in three months, and 350,000 last month, mostly services, well, that is a big red flag for the Federal Reserve uh, interest rate, what? Interest rate direction, you might say. <clears throat> okay, the Fed isn't gonna take this lightly. <laughs> no, 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 no. And when we look at the Fed's decision, what did Powell say here? Well, he said, well, we're not gonna raise rates. You know, all the markets were really, the markets, what the hell are the markets? Why don't we say the markets? These are professional investors. You know, they try to obfuscate the fact that these are capitalists, the markets, right? Like there's some thing, uh, not, not agents, not people, right? Okay, that's a personal peak of mine there. Uh, so, all right, so uh, no rate hike here. And, and he really fed Chair Powell, really threw cold water on the markets by saying, uh, probably not in March either, unless, you know, there's some really strong data between now and March, and there won't be. Well, today certainly wasn't. This is really, uh, this, this data here on January jobs, but of course we'll get February jobs as well before March, uh, but so far, uh, you know, this job number, 353,000, is throwing really cold water on the Fed's decision to cut rates starting in March. No, no, I don't think it's going to happen. Because I don't think the inflation statistics that will come out are going to be conducive towards cutting rates either. Why not? Well, as I said before, goods prices that were flat are starting to creep up. Why? Well, the biggest element of goods prices are energy prices, oil, right? Oil prices. And oil prices are going up. Why? Uh, because of war in the Middle East, mostly. Yeah. You know, these oil tankers now are, can't go through the Red Sea. They got to go around. They got to go around uh, Africa, and that raises uh, costs shipping costs, also insurance companies, you know, in shipping insurance companies are boosting their prices. So the cost of a, do, uh, of a barrel accrued is now over $80. It was down to 70. It's over $80 in a couple of weeks. It's gonna keep rising as long as that political instability continues in the East, in the Middle East. I think it's gonna get worse. You know, uh, the Biden administration neocons are desperately looking for a way to attack Iran, and I think they're going to uh, do it here. Um, and we don't know what the reaction of Iran will be. Well, anyway, uh, you know, the problem is that the, the price of crude because of politics global is going to go up here. Uh, at the same time, uh, it looks like the uh, uh, U.S. oil companies are uh, cutting their supply as well. You know, they were producing 13 and a half million barrels a day. Now it's down to 12.2 million barrels a day. So the uh, U.S. oil companies are playing the game of uh, let's reduce supply so in the spring we can boost 
we can boost gasoline prices. Yeah. So you you got a couple forces driving up oil prices, which would keep inflation high uh, because it will reverse this trend of goods prices being flat. They will start rising too. And as we see, uh, it's pretty hard to get uh, uh, services, employment, and workers in the services sector uh, to cut their consumption because they're getting laid off because they're not getting laid off, according to the CES survey. Okay, so that's the connection here uh, between the Fed and these jobs reports because the Fed looks at the jobs report, the Fed looks at the inflation report, and the Fed doesn't say it, but the Fed, I think, is looking at the commercial real estate and regional banking sectors as well. Because if it raises rates in that sector, it's going to exacerbate more seriously the regional banks that we see now are in bigger trouble, according to Wall Street Journal, and the commercial property sector problem. That's looming in the background, you see. So the Fed looks at inflation, the Fed looks at jobs, the Fed is sort of quietly looking through the other eye at the regional banks. Because the Fed has thrown out a lot of money uh, to prop up the regional banks since the March 23 uh, regional bank crisis. You know, and if it makes it worse, it's going to have to throw even more money out. Okay. Let's look at another survey in the jobs numbers. This is called the Current Population Survey, CPS. Now, the current population, there's two job surveys, as we've always been saying. The CES, which gives you this big, hyped, spun, monthly job creation number, the 353,000, right? But then there's the CPS survey, which is a true survey in which the Labor Department goes out and does a monthly survey of smaller businesses. You see, this captures the reality in the smaller businesses. The CES captures the reality of jobs in the bigger businesses. The CPS also captures uh, what's going on uh, with unemployment. The unemployment numbers come from the CPS. The employment number that's hyped, 353,000, comes from the CES. Now, what's ignored by the media is that the CPS also has an employment number. But that's never mentioned because they want to cherry pick the top big corporation job creation number, the 353,000. Okay, so let's look at the CPS employment levels. What you see is a totally different picture. You see a much weaker labor market. We have a bifurcated job market going on in this country, just as we have a bifurcated economy. The big companies are doing okay, and especially the tech companies. Although they're laying off now, too, for different reasons. They're clearing the decks because they're going to hire a whole bunch of people for AI. They're clearing the decks to do it, and then some. Let me digress a little bit on that, okay? Let's talk about Meta, Facebook, okay? Meta 
has cut its labor force 22%. This is Zuckerberg, Zucky, Zucky's baby, right? Instagram and Facebook and so forth. Meta, it's called. <clears throat> okay, one of the, the big seven tech companies, you know, that I call, you know, Evil Corp. This is Evil Corp. The big techs are Evil Corp. Uh, we'll have a show on that, why I call them that. Okay, so, uh, you know, Meta cut 22% of its labor force in recent years here. And it just announced a $50 billion buyback of its stock. $50 billion. Well, where do you think they got it? Well, they laid off one-fifth of their workforce, right? And for the first time, a dividend of 50 cents on their stock shares. Oh, boy, they're really plowing the money back from saving, laying off people to their shareholders. Yeah, really. And, of course, uh, Zucky, Zucky's getting a good piece of that pie, too, because I just saw a reference that uh, he, he's, he, he's made $700 million on interest on his stock last year. You know, it's not counting, you know, what salary he gets. $700 million one year in interest on his stock. Yeah, so he's doing good. Interest on his stock. Well, if the price of the stock rises because you're giving $50 billion buybacks, well, then your $700 million is going to rise too. Hmm. Okay, so that's an aside here. I couldn't resist that piece of news. <clears throat> Let's get back to the jobs number. Okay. As I've been saying, there's two surveys. And two surveys have employment level statistics. The CES, large corporations, 353,000 last month. CPS, totally different picture. What do we see in CPS? Well, if you want to look it up, go to table A9 in the jobs report today called the Employment Situation Report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Labor Department. Okay. What do we see in table nine that's quite different, you know, from this table one CES? Well, listen to this. In January, I'll go slow. Let's talk about full-time workers only. Then we'll talk about part-time. Then we'll talk about self-employed, unincorporated self-employed workers, which are never used for calculating unemployment rates or anything. There's nine and a half million of those, almost 10 million, but they don't get included, see? Okay, so let's talk about full-time workers. In the table A-9 of the current population survey, what do we see? Employment level. What do we see? Well, last month, in January, there were 131,549,000 5, full-time workers employed. Full-time employed. How many were there full-time employed in December? 132,585,000. In other words, full-time workers the total employed full-time workers in one month dropped one million. One million full-time workers, fewer 
full-time workers in one month versus the 353,000 gained in one month in the other survey. And employment levels, right? Employment levels. We're talking about employment levels here. Now, if you look at full-time workers in the CPS survey, January 24, compared to January 23, well, it rose. In January 23, is 131,175,000, right? January 24, 131,549,000. So we have a gain of about 370,000 full-time workers over 12 months. Where's all these millions of jobs that Biden's been claiming he created? Wait a minute, employment level full-time workers only up 370,000 jobs over the year. According to this survey, of course, they don't look at that one, right? They don't want to hype that one. They don't cherry pick that one. Yeah. And the trend is they lost a million in one month of full-time workers. Well, let's look at part-time. What do we see in part-time in this table A9? <clears throat> employment level, part-time employment level. Okay. Last month, January, 28,101,000. Okay. December 23, well, 28,169,000. So part-time workers last from month to month, December to January, also dropped 70,000. 70,000 in one month, employment level, part-time workers. Now, when you compare January 24, part-time, to the year earlier, January 23, well, we did get a growth of 600,000 part-time workers over the year. 600,000. Yeah, over the year. Now, you add that to 370,000 full-time workers, January to January, right? you get about a million part-time and full-time jobs created over the course of the past year, a million jobs. Okay, well, you know, Biden's claiming 14 million in the last three years, 14 million. Well, as I've been saying over and over and over, those aren't created by Biden. Those are the result of the economy reopening after 30 million people were unemployed at one point in 2020. The economy shut down and then it reopened. You know, first in uh, abortively there in the fall of 2020 and then it reopened, you know, in the summer of 2021. So, look, you know, those aren't created by Biden. He can't take credit for reopening the economy. You know, what the government simply did was say, okay, no more shutdowns. Go back to work. You know? And most of those people went back to work. So what you get, as I've said before, net new jobs after the reopening, about 2.7 million net new jobs that he can take credit for being created over two years. 2022, the first full year 
after the reopening. You can't count the reopening year 2021 because, you know, too much of, of, uh, of that job uh, increase is just from reopening. You can't count 2021. You got to count 2022, the first full year, and then 2023, right? We see in 2023 an increase, you know, of about a million full-time and part-time jobs, according to the CPS survey, right? About a million. And before that, maybe 1.7 million in 2022. So 2.7 million, not 14 million. But yet he's going around saying, oh, I created 14 million jobs. Bullshit. He didn't create 14 million jobs. 2.7 million, you know, which isn't that big month-to-month creation. And most of them, as we're seeing, is in services. And a big proportion of them are part-time and gig jobs. Now, what about the self-employed? Who the hell are these self-employed? Well, there's two categories of self-employed workers in this country. One is incorporated self-employed, you know, like lawyers and, and doctors and dentists. These people incorporate for tax purposes. But then there's another big category, unincorporated. In other words, I'm self-employed. What does it take to get self-employed in California? 20 bucks. You send 20 bucks to uh, the, you know, the state of California, uh, I forget the, the department, uh, and, and give your business a name, you know, put an article, uh, fictitious business statement, you know, you got to put it in the press, you know, get one of these little community papers and they put a little line in it, you know, and uh, you, you're self-employed. You're unincorporated self-employed. It's easy to start a business. You, know? you don't even have to pay uh, annual fees, corporations do to the state. Very easy. Uh, okay, so how many unincorporated workers are there? And who are these people? Well, these are people who, who are usually professionals who lose their job and say, oh, now I'm a consultant, right? And they get uh, surveyed and, and survey, you know, and Labor Party asks them, are you working? Well, of course I'm working. I'm a consultant, right? <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, uh, how many hours are you working? Oh, I'm working full time, you know? I'm trying to get contracts and businesses here, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm consulting for this, the company that it laid me off, maybe, you know, I'm a marketing manager or something. How many of them are there? Almost 10 million. Unincorporated, self-employed. Well, what's their numbers? January last month, <clears throat> nine and a half million. Nine and a half million. How many in December? About 10 million, 9.9 .9 million. So, the number dropped 400,000 in one month. 400,000 fewer self unincorporated self-employed. So you got to subtract them from the 1 million increase here over the year of uh, part-time and full-time. In other words, what I'm showing you is that, you know, uh, these government statistics are like the Bible. You can find whatever you want. You know, you can cherry pick and, and hype, you know, like Paul Krugman, New York Times does, hypes, you know, the best numbers to make the Biden administration look like it's doing so well. And the economy is doing so well. But as we know, you know, the surveys show 
most of the population doesn't think the economy is doing so damn well. You know, and, and you know, the politicos and, and uh, the media are scratching their heads and say, well, gee, we're doing so well. Why do people not, not realize we're doing so well? You know, inflation came down in the last six months, right? Well, hell, the CPI is up over 20% the last three years, and that's what people remember because they got to keep paying those bills that are up 20% on average, right? They got to keep paying them. You know? their, their payment, their wages certainly haven't gone up 20%. No, no, when you look at the wage numbers, you know, that includes um, uh, managers and professionals where, you know, the growth in the employment is too, and uh, other categories of higher skilled, higher paid, you know, the wage gains that they talk about an average of four and a half percent. Well, it's skewed to the top. You know, they're getting way more than four and a half percent, which means those at the middle are getting nothing or two percent per year. But inflation has gone up 20 percent or about six to seven percent per year last three years under Biden. That's what people remember. That's why they're not so happy about it. The condition of the economy, you know, that's the reality. Down, you know, where the rubber meets the road, where real people are, they're not doing so well in wages or jobs or whatever. They know it. Oh, but, you know, the Beltline people there, the political class and their media hypers, uh, they're saying everybody's doing so damn good. <clears throat> well, not true. Anyway, to sum up this job number thing, wow talking longer on that than I want to, uh, 353,000, 900,000, according to the CES, new jobs created. But when you look at the CPS survey, what do you see? You, know, you see a million jobs less, employment levels a million less month over month. <clears throat> and for the year over year, uh, you know, when you look at full-time, part-time, and self-employed, unincorporated, you get about seven, eight hundred thousand higher job uh, employment level from January 23 to January 24. Okay, so let's just round it off. Say a million jobs, million jobs for the whole year. Right after we lost a million jobs here from January, December to January. Okay, the net left is a million. Okay, uh, that's the reality. That's the reality. So just remember all this cherry picking going on uh, has to do with uh, a big discrepancy between the two job surveys, and the other one doesn't get reported very much, right? Uh, by the way, one, one more comment, last comment on that. The unemployment rate is in the CPS, CPS, and you hear, Oh, 3.7% for the last three months, 6 million workers, right? That's the one that gets into the media. But in the CPS, you see, that's just the U-3 full employment. Full-time workers here is the 3.7%. Uh, when you look at part-time workers unemployed, uh, those who dropped out of the labor force, those who are discouraged and all the rest, the unemployment rate, last month, was not 3.7, it was 8%. Not 3.7, it's 8% when you count these other categories in their own figures. Right? 
the unemployed who are part-time, the unemployment who drop out, the missing labor force, etc., discouraged. That's called the U-6 unemployment rate. Go look at table A-14 in today's report, you know, and you will see from January to January, right? January of 23, unemployment rate was 7.4%. When you look at the U-6, all of these, these groups, not just full-time, January 24, unemployment rate is up to 8%. Now, the total civilian labor force is 167 million. So 8% of 167 million gives you how many unemployed? Well, somewhere between 13, 14 million unemployed, not the 6.1 million that they say when they look at the U-3. U-6, right, 14 million unemployed, 8% unemployment rate. U-3, full-time only, right, 3.7%. Okay, enough on the jobs. Enough on the jobs. Let's, let's move on. <coughs> we talked a little bit about the Fed, right, and the commercial property. Sector CRE, I'll call it <clears throat> commercial real estate, which is once again offices, which is the crux of the problem here. Uh, because of COVID, you know, people are uh, working remotely a lot more, and businesses are trying desperately to get people back. Um, but for many of them, it's not going to happen. That train's left the station, <clears throat> unless you have some big. Uh, recession, depression, then people will be uh, desperate and they'll be able to force them back into the offices. <coughs> but it's a big gain, income, net income gain for people who work from home, remote. Okay, so uh, commercial property, uh, big problem here, as I started talking about earlier. Uh, news last week uh, was that uh, another community uh, regional Bank, Community Bank of New York, is in trouble. You know, remember Silicon Valley Bank and Republic Bank and you know, all those others that had to be bailed? Uh, well, New York Community Bank facing the same issue now. And when, it, you know, the news gets out that the bank is in trouble, depositors leave like rats leaving a ship, right? <laughs> and uh, they take their money with them which exacerbates the problem in the bank because its money capital disappears as in the form of depositors and uh, they look even more in the red than they are and then people start uh, selling their stock and the value of their stock assets collapse too and they look even worse than they are, et cetera, et cetera, right? So New York Community Bank in trouble in New York. I'm taking this straight off of the Wall Street Journal today. Front page, big biggest headline, front page, right? But this article says uh, the problem's global. Yeah, they refer to uh, a Tokyo-based Azora Bank, same thing. You know, the indicator of the bank in trouble is when its stock price starts going south. That means the positives are leaving and they're not buying. Uh, uh, you know, they're not keeping their money in the bank, right? <clears throat> This was the first loss for Azora Bank, you know, in 15 years. Well, it was 15 years, 15, 2008, oh, financial crash. 
Yeah. Uh, and then the article goes on and says, in Switzerland, the private bank, Julius Beyer, right, says it lost $700 million that's going to write off off of the Austrian property landlord, Signa Group. So Signa Group, real estate developer, in trouble and uh, can't pay its loans that it borrowed from Bayer Bank, Julius Bayer Bank, and Julius Bayer had to write them off, $700 million, right? Uh, to quote the article, right? Banks are big, quote, banks are big lenders to real estate owners and developers, putting them on the front line of the downturn in office buildings, failing valuations. Oh, the risks are particularly acute for small and regional lenders, mm. where a far higher portion of their loan portfolios are in commercial real estate compared to the bigger banks. Right. What are the U.S. regional banks still in trouble, uh, apart from New York Community Bank, we just heard? Uh, well, the article says PNC Financial Services Group, Citizens Financial Group, M&T Bank. All of these banks, their stock prices are falling, declining. Right. <clears throat> Deutsche Bank says it's put... Uh, uh, increased its loss provisions on its U U.S. commercial loan portfolio fivefold <laughs> in the past year. Whoa, they see something coming, right? There's $2.2 trillion of commercial property loans set to come due in the next two years. $2.2 trillion. All right. Commercial real estate pain in the office sector is just starting, according to Ann Walsh, Chief Investment Officer of Guggenheim Partners Investment Management. Wow. Especially small and mid-sized lenders face substantial numbers of loans to office landlords, landlords that have to come due in the next 24 months. Now, this ties into the Fed. If the Fed raises rates, then when these CRE loans come due, you know, they have to be rolled over. In other words, refinanced. Can they be refinanced at higher rates if the Fed raises rates? No. A lot of them, the banks will say, hey, look, you know, uh, we charged you only 5% uh, two years ago or five years ago, but now, you know, it's going to be 7 or 8%. Uh, we don't think you're going to survive here uh, to pay it because you're already zombies and, uh, you know, we're not going to roll over your loan at a higher rate. Goodbye. Yep. That means the stock price of that particular real estate developer collapses. And people see that and whoop, contagion. See, there's the double contagion potential here. Not only the real estate developers who have borrowed all this money when they start going south. It sets off a chain reaction and their stock prices fall all across the board. Uh, but the regional banks that are lending them, you know, they have losses and it sets off a chain reaction among the regional banks. And then it can spill over even the big banks because the big banks uh, loan money to the regional banks. You see, all this financial thing is a web. It's a spider's web. It's all connected. All right.
International Monetary Fund warned in October of a global financial instability, right? Quote, global commercial property prices could fall significantly further this year. And not just Azora Bank in Japan, a community banks in in the U.S., uh, but uh, we're talking about European, Signa Group, Austrian, Switzerland, Julius Bayer, etc. And don't forget that last week also, the big China property developer Evergrande uh, was told, um, get rid of some assets. In other words, you know, you're going under Evergrande, just do the best you can. So it's a global, it's a global problem. And it's tied in with interest rates and it's tied in with the economy and so forth. <clears throat> okay. Final commentary, Ukraine. All right, so uh, we just got news that uh, Europe was able to uh, convince Hungary to join it in raising money, in other words, bonds here, to give Ukraine $54 billion. Yeah, funding for Ukraine, $54 billion. Hungary had held out. But they really, they, the rest of Europe, really threatened Hungary and uh, saying, well, you're, we're not going to get, you're not going to get your money that share from the EU that we give to you. Not only that, but uh, we're going to, a report came out, was leaked out probably purposely here from the European Commission saying that, oh, we're going to just have to destabilize the political system and Orban in Hungary because he's not going along. He's blocking this loan uh, to Ukraine. In other words, they're going to step on their own rules and regulations uh, to do a regime change in Hungary, right? And so at the last minute, Orban uh, capitulated and said, okay, I'll vote, you know? I mean, this really shows that this war in Ukraine is not Ukraine against Russia. This is NATO against Ukraine. This is NATO. And the Europeans are doing the bidding of the U.S., which is uh, policy based on by the neocons. You know, that's what's going on here. And at the same time in the U.S., uh, there's a struggle going on in Congress for the U.S. to give billions of dollars, $61 billion is what Biden wants for Ukraine. Europeans get $54 billion. U.S. wants to get $61 billion to keep it afloat because Ukraine's an economic and political basket case, right? There's no way that Ukraine can economically function by itself. Yeah. They want $105 billion more, $115 billion more for Ukraine for 2024. Uh, well, will the U.S., the Congress, you got the Republicans resisting that, right? Because the Republicans are playing chicken with the Biden administration. They say, okay, you know, you want your money for Ukraine. Uh, we want you to agree to our program here on immigration on the southern border. That's what it is. This is just a trade-off. And Republicans, if they get what they want from Biden, I think they will, right? They'll be able to say for election C, you know, oh, you got our immigration policy, adopted by Biden. And if Biden caves into it, then it's pretty damn clear Biden's more concerned about the borders in Ukraine than he's more concerned about the borders in the U.S. And boy, they'll go after him with that in the election. You see, it's all election bullshit. (laughs) So I think, uh, you know, the U.S., now that the Europeans have passed $54 billion, 
there will be a deal here, a trade-off between immigration and uh, Ukraine will get something from the U.S. <clears throat> but by the way, that money from the U.S. Uh, never even goes to Kiev. No, no. It goes from the U.S. Treasury to the coffers of the military-industrial complex in the U.S., the Raytheons, the Lockheeds, Boeings, and so forth, and they just send the weapons over there, you see? Uh, so oh, this whole war is just a way of feeding the military-industrial complex. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, they fed themselves, gouged themselves, no, they filled themselves up with the terrorism war, right? Well, when that was ended, you know, they had Afghanistan and so forth. Well, no, we needed a new war uh, to keep the MIC going, you know. And, uh, well, they got it with Ukraine. <clears throat> this is all about money. This is all about capitalists making money, you know. If it wasn't Ukraine, there'd be another damn war somewhere. Keep it all going. Probably China, right? They're preparing for that one, <clears throat> you know, should the Ukraine one uh, uh, tap out here, right? So, you know, it's all about money. Keep and, and there will be a deal on immigration. There will be a deal. Okay? So that's what's going on uh, with the Ukraine funding. All right. That's it. I'm out of here.